Welcome back to the show that tells you you are a quantum computer with free will pinched off from a unified field of consciousness. My name is Justin Riddle and this is episode 32 of the Quantum Consciousness series. In today's episode I'll be presenting an interview I conducted with Andres Gomez Emilson, the director of research at the Qualia Research Institute. This interview took place on November 4th, 2022 in Oakland, California. In this interview, we'll be talking about various ideas about consciousness from Andres, such as mathematical fictionalism, symmetry of valence theory, neural annealing as it pertains to psychedelic therapy for psychiatric illness, and an overall model of consciousness presented by Andres that relies heavily on geometry. I will be interrupting the interview periodically in this episode to summarize a lot of these ideas and to provide some graphical representations which will hopefully make the material more accessible. If you like what you hear today, please like this video, subscribe to this channel, leave a comment below, or for the audio listener, write a review. And without further ado, we'll hop into the interview. Join me inside the Okay, hey Andres, uh, great to be here with you. Um, yeah, we're just here to check in, talk about some consciousness questions. Um, <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, so just to start off, like, why don't you... Introduce yourself, introduce the Qualia Research Institute. Yeah, well, thank you for, for having me here. I've been enjoying your videos. It's uh, really fun talking to a uh, quantum consciousness person who is not crazy. And uh, <laughs> well, I hope not. Yeah. <laughs> Certified not crazy. Certified. Um, yeah, so the Qualia Research Institute, um, me and uh, Mike Johnson co-founded it uh, around 2016. And um, essentially, uh, we have a theory of consciousness, which is, uh, you know, something kind of crazy to say, but okay, everybody has a theory of consciousness. We all have one. Yes, exactly. Whether we realize <laughs> it or not, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah. Uh, implicit at the very least. At the very least, people have like theories of mind and uh, a story they might tell themselves about what's going on. Uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, we have like a very, very, you know, systematic theory that tackles what we think is kind of like every area of... Um, concern essentially breaking down the hard problem of consciousness into tractable sub problems mm -hmm. and uh essentially yeah like we we started with that um and uh, a very important influence as well is uh the philosopher david pierce uh, mm, okay yeah, <laughs> do, yeah, do you yeah. know him I, I feel like i don't know him too well i know the name but oh, okay. yeah maybe a brief intro yeah yeah david pierce is yeah. a uh, <clears throat> uh transhumanist philosopher from the uk mm, so essentially okay. he advocates for the reduction and ultimately the elimination of suffering uh you know extremely ambitious task noble goal yeah somewhat controversial in some circles but um and uh yeah i mean essentially um he's also like very he has kind of like a theory of consciousness as well very very synergistic with uh, with qri's perspective and um essentially qri is kind of like this blend of okay there's like a, a way of breaking down the hard problem of consciousness and there's the goal of getting rid of suffering in some sense it's kind of like you know the meaning of life <laughs> you know it's kind of like have fun and understand but also you know take care of each other it would be maybe mm -hmm. one way of summarizing mm -hmm. it yeah 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 um and uh 
essentially we think you know that there's actually like well some people might say that suspicious convergence of like well you know your intellectual interest and you know ethical imperative like they come together but essentially i i think so i mean if we actually have like a good theory of consciousness that will allow us to you know create like better neuroscience mm-hmm. and in turn mm-hmm. that allows us to make better neurotechnology that can cash out in ways to prevent massive amounts of suffering throughout the world yeah 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 there's this idea that you know philosophy of mind is like a luxury science you know right. or like oh it's just kind of a fun pastime but yeah i agree i think i think it is really core like how we view ourselves how we identify yeah just yeah it really informs everything around us and yeah learning more about the nature of self the nature of mind like should be at the forefront of maybe medicine and technology right it seems I think it so. seems like that should be the future, at least, uh, <laughs> at least to my mind. <laughs> yep. So a quick rundown of, I guess, the uh, mm, you know mm. very high level picture of uh, QRI. Yeah. So three disciplines and three goals, <laughs> and then there's the mission in our website, which is how like kind of these get condensed, uh, mm-hmm, how it cashes mm-hmm. out. So um, the disciplines are like straight up philosophy of mind. You know, like publishing mm-hmm. papers in academia about like actual philosophy of mind, tackling, you know, nice. classic questions like the yeah, binding yeah. problem or the hard problem of consciousness uh-huh, or uh-huh. the causal efficacy of consciousness, mm. uh, the palette problem in qualia. Um, all okay, of that stuff. That one, but okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, in brief, it's, you know, like what's up with the variety of like qualia values and, and, uh, and textures that exist, like, and what are their interrelationships and why are they the way they are like that's mm, a, very puzzling mm, right mm, why is there like mm. color qualia and audio qualia and tactile yeah, qualia yeah, yeah. <laughs> how are they connected to each yeah, other how do they connect yeah how do you go across multiple modalities is yeah. that kind of the, the core question there yeah. yeah so that would be the other mm. the palette problem it, it also catches out in um, essentially one of the components which is like mapping out the state space of consciousness one of the elements of uh, mapping out the state space of consciousness is identifying all of the Qualia values that are possible. Mm. Where like, okay, this very particular shade of blue would be a very specific qualia value, but then like this particular, you know, timbre of sound would be another one. Um, and then like how they, you know, come together, how can they aggregate? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yeah, straight up philosophy of mind. <laughs> the second discipline is neuroscience. Um, nice. We live by the ideology, maybe misguided. No, I, I actually, actually it's very generative, which is like, if you have like better philosophy of mind, mm-hmm. that should cash out into like, innovative ways of doing neuroscience kind of like mm, new perspectives mm, on neuroscience yeah new perspectives yeah um yeah i was gonna say yeah we we definitely need new models um i think yeah one epiphany i had was just the the simplicity of these cause effect models that just run <laughs> rampant in biology like protein a causes protein b and that yeah. causes protein c and it's just such a real simple linear way of thinking and that, that is just such the default you know and i, I yeah. think there's so much room to I don't know, yeah, have a geometric influence or have, you know, who knows, just like other <laughs> forms of causality that aren't just so like like locally based and like simply based. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know what that would look like, but Oh yeah, I'd be happy <laughs> Maybe to, you would yeah. have an idea. Maybe some ideas. Um and then the other third the third discipline is a uh, neurotechnology. It's like mm. actually, you know, cashing out the neuroscience to construct the high level logic for mm-hmm. um neurotechnological interventions mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. i mean you know the latest kind of like fun thing in that space if, if you look at our uh, the qri youtube channel we have like some yeah. research on like you know exploring the the state space of like haptic stimulation and how there's like a lot mm-hmm. of body vibrations are like really euphoric and healing 
others are like actually kind of like anxiogenic and unpleasant and weird. Gotcha. <laughs> and like, we, you know, we, we kind of like developed a music theory for body vibrations. Wow, interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I love this idea that there is like some real feedback you get from people's experience, you know, and it's yeah. sure it's a verbal report, but you, you can understand what they're saying yeah. and then you can really map yeah, these like subjective spaces that you can't really measure except through like verbalization, right? But then, but then yep. if you if you get enough reproducibility across people's experiences, like how is that not scientific? You know Absolutely. What I mean? Yep. Yeah. There's, if it's reproducible, it's it's scientific, I guess. Yes. Like the, fundamentally. No, and uh, there's an enormous variability in people's kind of a you know introspection quotient or something like that. Where, mm. like, well, it's one one of the yeah. you know the things that we we claim a lot of the things that uh, um, we've discovered actually come from like people who are like just kind of extreme outliers in like introspection quotient or something like that. Mm. Like, like their ability to introspect or like the accuracy of their introspection or both, and also yeah. uh, kind of like the 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 breadth of metaphors they might use, for example. Mm, okay. Um, and their ability to like. Um, precisely quantify aspects of their experience like for example mm -hmm. yeah there's like some advanced meditators with whom we're, we have collaborated they're like i mean i kid you not if you like shine a stroposcopic light at them mm -hmm. they can tell you oh this is probably 17 hertz wow like that <laughs> level of accuracy is like okay maybe it wasn't 17 but it was like 16 and he's like yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know plus minus two and he's like how do you do that but like mm. you know if they can do it with stroposcopic stimulation where you know the ground truth okay this is the strobing effect uh, and then they say like, well, I entered into, you know, third jhana mixed with, you know, this like equanimity factor and it was like strobing at like 12 hertz. He's like, okay, I believe you. <laughs> and like, yeah, okay, yeah, we can yeah, use yeah. that data. So it's, th you know, that kind of like super advanced kind of um, introspection abilities. We call it the, sh the Shulgin quotient. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> in, in, yeah, in honor of Sasha Shulgin, in the yeah, yeah, writer yeah. of uh, PICAL. Um, mm -hmm. So... Yeah, very, very happy to, to dive deeper into that. But yeah, and then we also have the three objectives, which is yeah, kind of like the you know ethically serious component of QRI, which is getting rid of intense suffering. Uh, that's we think like that's kind of like an ethical priority. Yeah. Uh, we make a lot of arguments that like um, kind of like a lot of like lenses for cost prioritization within effective altruism um, essentially neglect um, the actual hedonic quality of experience. Mm. Uh, for example, you have this measure that is called a quality adjusted life years, you know, maybe a little bit better than just like, okay, number of years like saved that or something like that. But yeah, so how, how much of the time of your life did you enjoy or did you have a meaningful experience? Exactly. Yeah. So if you use that as mm. kind of your objective function for evaluating uh, interventions, I think like it's a really great, you know, first step. But the problem is that quality adjusted life years is kind of a ignorant of the actual distribution of hedonic states. So mm. the difference between somebody who's kind of like, you know, not enjoying life and is kind of like depressed versus somebody mm. who's like having like cluster headaches every day yeah. looks the same from the point of view of quality adjusted life years. And so like you're actually kind of like there's a ton of suffering that is completely invisible from mm -hmm. that lens. Mm -hmm. And instead we're championing a completely different perspective, which is uh, it cashes out into kind of this notion of like hedons per second, you know, actually how many nice. like micro experiential moments of suffering are you having <laughs> oh my god and uh and trying to minimize that which is mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. if you look at it from that perspective all of a sudden okay actually getting rid of cluster headaches like you know make get rid of like you know 10 percent of the world's suffering like something like absolutely yeah, insane yeah, yeah. which is like this like very simple cheap intervention that from a different lens 
may look like you did nothing, right? So, mm, mm-hmm. j- I, and I'm not saying like let's only use this this lens. I'm saying like it's an important one that is like completely neglected, and QRI is kind of like championing that perspective. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. One thing I've thought about with like hedonism, right? Yeah, yeah, is, yeah. Um, yeah. How do we quantify? I guess what what's fulfilling yes, and. Yes. And I feel like when you just go so far into like pleasure principle, it feels like almost too reductive. And I'm, I'm not I'm not accusing you of being overly reductive, yeah, but right. I, I feel like there's there's got to be some element of like <laughs> meaning or fulfillment or like interconnectedness <laughs> or like right like like, like do, does part of the hedonism relate to uh, well so to a more abstract concept or so, somebody somebody um, described QRI and I think me in particular as like a boss level hedonist. So like. Okay. So nice. like, I'm, I, I'm actually like a hardcore, like like hedonistic, you know, utilitarian. There's like a lot nice. of like open okay. questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I mean, I claim that I can answer any of those concerns. Um, mm. One element is that, uh, you know, and if you talk to like Buddhists uh, who have, you know, looked at this very carefully and also like if you introspect on yourself, meaning itself, the reason we value it is mm. because it has positive valence. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And it like yeah. organizes your the structure of your mind in such yeah, a way yeah. that you experience many more micro experiential moments of well-being now pleasure has a connotation that sounds selfish and self-centered and it's mm, absolutely mm. the case that there's like a lot of varieties of pleasure that are like that especially very dopaminergic driven sure um addictive behaviors like mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. when i say like optimizing yeah we i think, I think we all know what you're talking about yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Whereas <laughs> from our lens, you know, mm-hmm. if you're having kind of a um, experience of cosmic unity and complete well-being and union with God, that from our point of view, it's a very what we call high valence experience. Like, and but but, but it's it's kind of feels less selfish, right? Is, oh, is totally, what you're saying. But then totally not self. Yes, yeah, totally not selfish. And, really, yeah. Um, like it has a representational content that, for example, has like a and you know expanded moral circle of compassion which mm-hmm. i think is like absolutely mm-hmm. valuable and extremely mm-hmm. instrumentally useful mm-hmm. but it, when it comes down to it the moment to moment value of those experiences independent of their you know like outward positive effects which also can be in principle quantified is that it's actually a profound feelings of well-being um, mm. and uh, you know one of the overarching kind of like frameworks that we have at QRI is what what we call um uh, valence structuralism. This is the idea that the thing that determines whether an experience feels good or bad is the actual structure of the experience. So essentially every moment of experience maps onto this like mathematical object mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, is the structure mm-hmm. of the mathematical object that determines whether you're feeling good or bad. Yeah. And yes, like, sure, like uh, I'm, I'm, the moment you're coming up on cocaine and like you feel a bit kind of like clear-headed and expanded and motivated, has some elements, like it has some facets that essentially have like this very positive kind of like smooth um, uh, consonant uh, aspects of experience that are like positive valence. If you're having a mystical experience on a Zen retreat or on 5MEO DMT or whatever mm-hmm, it may be, mm-hmm. also has those elements, but maybe like a thousand times like more energized and much more comprehensive. It's not just kind mm-hmm, of like this like mm-hmm. gloss over your experience. It's kind of like yeah, all yeah. of your experience is like that. And so, and, and you know, people people actually might, might describe these like, you know, they might have like a profound 5MEO DMT experience. They come down and say like, 
like oh my gosh that was kind of like the essence of what falling in love was trying to get at mm. and what like eating chocolate was trying to get at and what like God, yeah. cocaine was trying to get at but all of but those he never kind of, quite reached no. to that, that like pristine structure exactly yeah. like yeah. all of those were like very imperfect slices or projections of the actual yeah, yeah. thing which is you know in a very poetic sense it's kind of a god in a state of perfect well-being mm-hmm. and like mm-hmm. that is mm-hmm. yeah you know there's a way of describing that is which is like hedonistic but again, without the connotation of selfishness. Yeah, interesting. Oh my God, yeah, so many things you could spin <laughs> off with this one. But um, to, to kind of like dive into a little bit of a playness question for oh, you. Yeah, yeah. So, well, or, 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 or do you want to not derail? Uh, no, no, I, I just wanted to say like the, uh, the last two. Uh, oh, the last out, two elements. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is okay. uh, improving baseline. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll, we can probably get into these when we get into uh, anti-tolerance drugs. Sure. Uh, okay. <laughs> probably one of the most like, yeah, kind of like Caesary controversial aspects of QRI, which is actually kind of fun. Uh, and then the last one is um, uh, achieving new heights, which essentially mm-hmm. is like, mm-hmm. how do we make it possible for people to have like healthy, wholesome, aligned experiences of super bliss, essentially? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Want to enable, ideally, everybody will have the right in the future to have something like a positive, guaranteed positive 5-MeO DMT experience. Like that's, for me, that would be like, okay, like that's definitely yeah, a part that's of amazing. utopia. So you, you <laughs> would figure out all the facets or factors of what shapes a person's experience and then you can just like neutralize the negative ones and yeah. like reach a point of like high probability guaranteed. Or <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or yeah, or maybe yeah, guaranteed. Maybe, maybe even guaranteed. Maybe nine, nine, it's a question yeah. of how many nines. <laughs> yeah, how many how many nines of, of perfect experience? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Platonism. Happy to dive into that. Oh yeah, well, just gonna comment like yeah, you were talking about these different structures and like the commonality between oh, yeah. experiences. And so like when I hear about qualia research, I'm kind of imagining like yeah, can we map out qualia space? Oh yeah, is there a domain that we're that we're mapping out? And then. To me, that feels like the Platonist dream, right? Sure. That, that that there's sort of this like transcendental shared reality or some shared structure behind each of us. And then when I learn about my experience, I learn about your experience just by virtue of there being a universal structure that we're tapping into. So yeah. I don't know, yeah, how, how do you engage with those concepts? I, I know you have a recent video kind of like yeah, uh, yeah. I, going, swinging against Platonism, <laughs> but maybe I could just try to understand your argument. Yeah, totally, totally. I mean, uh, I think the title was something like "Mathematics as the Study of Patterns of Qualia." Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. From psychotic Platonism to enlightened fictionalism. So, I mean, my my theory of mathematics is a uh, fictionalism. I, I I do think that um, it isn't the case that there is a transcendental world made of pure math. Mm-hmm. I think that's a fiction. It's a very mm-hmm. useful fiction mm-hmm. because it allows you to get into like a mathematical cognitive style that is very generative. Yeah, yeah. When it comes down to it, like the ontological status of the m- mathematical platonic world is like the same as the ontological status of the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a really neat story. Um, but here's the thing, like just to give you a hint of what I'm trying to get at, and, like if you study a triangle, if you're trying yeah. to, if you're thinking about a triangle, you're seeing a triangle, you're seeing the corners and so on. You get this impression that you're kind of like studying a mind-independent object and seeing different facets. Yeah, of it. it seems like that. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it seems like it, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but analyze this from the point of view of, let's say, like a really hardcore, like insight practice, like Zen monk who spent like you know twenty years, like being able to dissect his experience, like mm-hmm. or her experience, like mm-hmm. super, super finely. 
mm-hmm. you actually don't experience a triangle. What you experience is like very brief flashes of fixation points of attention yeah. enveloped in a field of awareness that is sensing different facets of this construct. And at some point you can experience like some flashes of a gestalt, but even the flashes of a gestalt are composed of like micro fixation points. Mm. And so at no point actually the triangle exists. The thing that exists is a much weirder thing, which is this kind of like blanket of awareness that is segmenting itself out and getting these like pinch points and and Mm. elements that create the illusion of a person seeing a triangle. But the triangle itself doesn't exist. So we, we never hold like the actual model of a triangle holistically in our minds. So like you're saying. even when maybe yeah. in awareness, but not in attention in a way. Well, you, you can like um, you can have like what we call like large attention pads. Like if you take 5 mm-hmm. DMT at a small dose, mm-hmm. you experience sometimes like gestalts all at once. You do get kind of like this like, oh, this triangle appears all at once. But even when you're seeing the triangle all at once, Actually, the thing that is going on is that there is this field of awareness that is focusing on this like structure and in some sense sending waves of energy towards it mm-hmm. that then get reflected back into the field of awareness. Mm-hmm. And the actual shape of the experience is like this complicated. It's like, like this whole thing looking whole thing. at the thing. Yeah. It's not. And you, you can't separate those. Is no. What you're saying. No, they're, yeah. they're uh, you know, they, they co-arise. All right. So over the course of this interview, I'm really starting to build an understanding of Andre's full model. And so I think as we go through this interview together, I now have the 2020 hindsight to kind of understand and grasp his his overall model. And I'm going to try to lay out portions of this and it'll kind of get more and more clear as we as we go on. And so for me, when I think about geometry, and this is covered heavily in the previous episode, episode 31, I really view geometry as something of a shared language that we can have between individuals, right? I can picture a triangle and you can picture a triangle and we can rest assured that if we agree upon sort of the the space of what we're talking about, that we're both talking about the same thing. And so what what I'm kind of struggling with in in this part of the, the interview when I'm trying to grapple with is this idea that you can have a geometric theory of consciousness which is not platonic it doesn't have that universality to it and so what andres is essentially trying to pitch here is this idea that there's this unified field of consciousness and there's sort of this pinched off segmented off chunk of that field which is you And then within that field of awareness, which is you, there can be sort of bifurcations, as he calls them, or distortions in that field, which then are the information content within your field of consciousness. So that field of awareness, that field of consciousness, and then you can have your attention placed on a certain pattern a geometric distortion really within that field and so that can take the form of a triangle and so you're thinking about a triangle within that field but as Andres is trying to suggest it's incorrect to sort of 
view the triangle independently from the observer observing the triangle because the triangle is a distortion within this larger geometric space, this larger field of awareness. And, you know, it, he, he taps into some temporal domains. Also, there's these vibrations going on. So it's not just a spatially constructed geometry, but it's a, a temporally uh, vibrating, moving sort of field, I think is, is how I'm imagining his, his model. Um, and so there's sort of a distinction made here between the contents of awareness and the awareness itself, which is kind of what I'm getting at when I said attention versus awareness. Um, there's sort of a shape being represented and then there's the awareness itself. And maybe there's certain qualities to that space. Um, and so I'm trying to push Andres, I think, to, to think about, you know, these symmetries, these different patterns, if there's a regularity to those patterns that has some sort of universal shared meaning, right? When we're talking about pleasure and hedonism, trying to get everyone's sphere of awareness to experience pleasure, for example, some sort of altruistic drive to achieve um, a reduction of suffering in the world around us, you know, is there something universal to the reduction of suffering in that there is some symmetry, some sort of resonant, coherent pattern? Um, so maybe Andres would agree with me that we don't want to ascribe universality to a triangle, but maybe there's some more meta patterns which are universal or are kind of describing the universe itself. Um, and if this is getting very abstract, I've, I've touched on this a number of times in the series, really just when we think about the universe itself versus the laws or the rules governing the universe, are we conflating these two things together, right? Your sphere of awareness, my sphere of awareness, my mind, your mind, and then the mathematics, the rules, the geometric principles that guide each of these different minds, is there something common to those rules, to those laws? And I would suggest that having laws of physics is an inherently platonic idea to have something shared, to have something universal, to have something that's so meta that ontologically there are rules to the universe and we often don't consider that part of the universe um, and a lot of the Roger Penrose model that I've been discussing um, in this series, the three world model, it takes explicitly the idea that we need to have a mathematics, right? That mathematics is a part of our model of the universe. And it is in some ways distinct from the instantiation of you and me. You know, I'm here, you're there. We both have our own physical brains. Um, but we could have a shared rules governing um, our different experiences. And so what gets tricky here is Andres is really pitching this idea of fictionalism where the mathematics that you create and that I create are fictions and stories that we're telling ourselves. And so we're sort of in a pure qualia realm um, where qualia is the feeling, the subjectivity of our experience 
And Andres really puts subjectivity and qualia at the sort of pinnacle of ontology, of a metaphysics of reality, is that subjectivity, understanding subjectivity in the domain of subjectivity is what we need to be describing. And so mathematics is within the domain of subjectivity, right? Mathematics is the ordering, the sequencing of information that we apply to the information that we're processing, but we shouldn't confuse our understandings of the world with the world itself because qualia is fundamental, experience is fundamental. Um, and yeah, I, I, I can resonate with these ideas. I guess I just question, well then if there's any sort of regularity to the qualia, to that unified field of consciousness, isn't that regularity some sort of platonic truth or some sort of mathematics or some sort of, yeah, regularity that goes beyond any particular instantiation. So more on this and uh, we'll check back in after a little bit more. When you are like in deep meditative absorption into a particular mm -hmm. shape, I mean, I, I joke, you know, I've been into this like streak recently of like uh, sacred geometry because yeah, yeah, sacred yeah. geometry is like the ultimate kind of like crackpot, you know, yeah. honey trap or something. Yeah, yeah, Because it's like, it's like indefensible, <laughs> but, but, but we all kind of like resonate with it somehow. And so we're like, we're like drawn into, yeah, yeah, yeah. into like, agreeing with it on some level. And then, and then it's like, well, and I kind of mentioned my last video, like, where do you go from there? Okay. I have, I have yeah. this, like this shape and yeah, yeah. a bunch of people see it in yeah, these yeah, altered yeah. states. So, so here's the thing. Okay. What do you do? What do you do? So um, exactly. I mean, it's like a metaphor I was thinking of is like, like, um, you know, a teenager uh, atheist, right? It's like you can have mm -hmm. a strong emotional reaction against, let's say, like preachy Christianity because mm -hmm. you feel that they're like using appeal to emotions mm -hmm. to like um, break your rational capacities and like they're getting you from underneath or something like that. I think, I think, yeah, like the typical kind of rationalist, you know, Augfield reaction to like sacred geometry is like, like, yeah, sure. If you get into those patterns, you'll have like trippy experiences. But like that doesn't, you know, people then come out with like a whole metaphysics of like, oh, yeah, the, the connecting, you know, energy spots that connect you to the universal mind to have like all kind of like crazy metaphysics. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And in some sense, yes, it's kind of an emotional manipulation where um, or think of these. Think of it this way, like Alexander Shulgin uh, reported he was once invited to like a retreat in Brazil. Um, okay. yeah. where supposedly it was like a drug-free experience um, where essentially they would give you this sacrament and uh, you know it's kind of like well with prayer you know you're charged uh, up this water it's, it's like a it's like a placebo it's supposedly a placebo yeah. and people take it and it's like like wow I felt the same love I had like the moment I married my wife like it just mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know the rapture of they felt connected to God and it was perfect and yeah, they did, you know, he's nicked, somebody's nicked out a tiny sample of it. And like, oh, it turns out there was like MDMA out of water. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, no. I think sacred geometry is kind of like that because it's like, okay, do these like exercises. Um, and you know, there's like all kinds of interesting exercises. Like, yeah, like visualize like the flower of life in your mind's eye or like find the energy spots like right above your head or like, figure, mm -hmm. you know, there's like mm -hmm. fascinating stuff. And you experience that is like, wow, I felt like, I merged with the cosmos or I felt the sure. self-other divide broke down and some release of energy. All those effects are real effects. You know, you're actually getting You're something. actually having that experience. Right? You're, you're having that experience. Yeah. 
and is what we call uh, valence effects. Uh, it's again, it's not like you know a dopaminergic pleasure like cocaine, but it is kind of this uh, symmetrification and consonance of your experience. And from the point of view of QRI, what is going on there is that actually these are like neural annealing practices that are actually smoothing out the geometry of your experience and essentially improving the quality of it, the subjective quality of it. And the thing is that it works better if you assign a deep meaning to it. So mm, the deep yeah, meaning... You need to have the buy-in. Yeah, you need to yeah. have the buy-in that helps the concentration. Now, I think like actually, you know, it's kind of like the stages. If, if you know it's kind of a trick, it might be difficult to replicate. Just as like if you don't believe in God, you know, church is not going to be as powerful. Mm-hmm. But then once you know the trick and you gather enough concentration, yeah. you can actually get the same effects without the... the, the so uh, even the, if you know the placebo effect is a placebo, you can still generate a placebo effect, yeah. essentially. And essentially, yeah. it, it is the case that like not every shape will produce positive feelings. Like the mm. flower of life will legitimately be a faster connection to a very blissful experience mm. than let's say like a weird kind of like like pinchy asymmetrical shape oh, yeah. that is yeah. going to actually be kind of ansiogenic and un- unpleasant um and again like from the it's like chaos versus <laughs> like organization on some, on some like real rough yeah, level. yeah yeah well right in in, in our account essentially or c- could you have like a beautiful geometry that's still anxiety yes well, it depends on, like, you could have a very symmetrical shape. Okay. That just does not correspond to the native symmetries mm. of the mathematical. So object. it's like it's either a neutral valence or maybe negative valence. Could be negative, yeah. Yeah. So, so it's more kind of like, in some sense, okay, so here is a, a very important kind of like analogy. It's like, you know, like um, an ellipse, right? Like mm. an ellipse, if uh, you're kind of inside a, an elliptical room, you know, it's mm. kind of like this big elliptical room. Uh, the, the walls are kind of an ellipse and mm-hmm. you're standing at one of the focal points, right? Okay. Yeah. And, and you shout, you know, all of the waves will bounce off the room and converge on the other focal point. Mm-hmm. And from there, they will bounce off again and converge on you, right? Okay. So there's like a special point, yeah, right? Yeah, like it's yeah. not arbitrary. If you do the same thing in other places, you're not mm-hmm. going to get that effect. Mm-hmm. I think it's exactly the same. When you're focusing on some regions, usually along symmetrical axis of your consciousness, in some sense, you're directing energy by focusing your attention there. Mm. And from that is going to reflect into the outer edges of your experience. And if it's in the right places, it actually will bounce back, back and converge back. And that is going to generate a state of consonance. And in our theory, essentially, consonance is the source of positive valence. Mm. Whereas if you're actually using fixation points that are like in improper places, it will converge in a dissonant way and mm-hmm, in out of phase mm-hmm. and that actually may generate suffering and and, and mm-hmm, states of displeasure mm-hmm. so it is that, that's why i make the analogy with it like it is kind of like yes this is kind of like mdma in 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 a sacrament and like yes you're actually doing exercises that are like tuning fine-tuning your state of consciousness in a positive direction but the story that they're giving you for why that is happening is just not the case. <laughs> it has to do with mm. like the, the physics of how the waves of attention are reflecting in your experience. All right. So coming back to this model, which we were working on in the previous interim break. So we have a sphere of consciousness and we have distortions or some sort of folding, some sort of geometric pattern that is emerging 
in our sphere of awareness by paying attention to something. So when you pay attention to something, we can pull up a triangle, for example, from our previous um, break, where we imagine that triangle and that is represented as a distortion within your field of awareness. So now what Andres is saying is that it appears that there are certain geometric patterns that if we impose these patterns into our attention, we imagine, we think of these different embodiments of different geometries, and by focusing and imagining these different patterns, we have a different subjective qualitative experience that seems to come about from different types of imagination, different types of meditation on these different geometries. And so what Andres is suggesting here is that because you can imagine the flower of life or some other you know, hexagonal pattern which has some sort of sacred beauty to us, and in imagining that, you have this existential experience of being one with the cosmos or having really focused awareness or a sense of peace, you know, whatever that experience may be, he's making the argument that this is a reproducible phenomenon that people that undergo these different types of meditation can experience. I have not had this uh, experience myself, so I'm only, you know, commenting secondhand on, on his um, account of this. But essentially, because you can, in a reproducible way, experience these sort of altered, exalted, transcendental states of consciousness from particular geometries, but not from other geometries, this might lend some sort of insight into the nature of qualia or the nature of human subjective experience. What is the model of consciousness? And can we learn something about this model from these geometries, right? So that's kind of the overall sentiment. What he's cautioning us against is this kind of class of new age metaphysical theories where because you can induce this sense of uh, transcend, you know, transcendental experience in people, let's just accept that you can reproducibly induce this in an individual now you're in a state of emotional receptivity where then I can unlay my metaphysics on you and you're hyper-receptive, kind of in this vulnerable, naive state of, wow, I had no idea that you could blow my mind so completely with this you know, mind-numbingly simple geometric shape or this sort of mental rehearsal, this meditation, uh, this, this imagination that you can induce in yourself you have this profound valence, as, as Andres refers to this, this is his symmetry of valence theory, that there's certain symmetries that produce positive valence, positive emotional experiences. And because of this, it's kind of been leveraged in, into pushing different types of metaphysics. And he's cautioning us that just because you can have a strong, profound emotional experience, doesn't mean you should buy into whatever metaphysical model that person is pushing on you. And for me, I think this is what's so refreshing about Andres as an intellectual 
is that he's diving into a lot of these really new age topics, right? Various psychedelic experiences, sacred geometry, which, um, you know, has some sort of profound resonance with, I think, a lot of people. But what does this mean? You know, can we think rationally about these experiences and try to remove some of the uh, sort of mystical thinking from this and try to ground this into science? And I fully acknowledge and I, I think that this is a lot of new ideas that are not necessarily grounded in modern technology and in modern science. And we're still building that connecting bridge between the type of work that Andres is doing, you know, really relying on people's subjective experiences and then people doing neuroscience, people building computers, quantum computers. You know, there, there's still a bridge that needs to be created here, but there is some reproducible subjectivity that that is occurring in our culture and people. And I think we need to take this um, really critically. We need to think meaningfully and deeply about people's experiences subjectively. And Andres does a really great job of diving into these different experiences while trying to stay grounded. So hopefully that, that makes a lot of these ideas make more sense. And we'll hop back into the interview. Yeah, yeah. The, there's this whole paradigm. I made a, a video about it. Also, a write-up. It's uh, my interpretation of like the kind of computing that the brain is doing mm -hmm. is essentially these. Yeah, because you mentioned neural annealing. Yeah. yeah, is, yeah, is, yeah. is this the topic you're about to go into? It's very similar. Okay. So, so you also want to get definition of that when you. Oh, absolutely, chance. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, so just high-level view. There's like, I mean, there's a bunch of things I would say. Kiara is kind of contributing to the conversation, but like, from the point of view of kind of like high-level neuroscience and, and philosophy of mind. Mm -hmm. um, so we have like the symmetry theory of valence, which is like what aspects of experience correspond to a positive or negative, you know, shade of value. We have neural annealing, which is essentially mm -hmm. this, uh, yeah, dynamic physical account of things such as like why energizing your conscious with, with psychedelics can actually be therapeutic. And mm -hmm. when we get into like psilocybin for depression, like yeah, that's very yeah, relevant. Yeah. Then we have like a paradigm of computation, which is like, how is your consciousness actually like computationally useful? I mean, this solves epiphenomenalism in, in our account yeah. and uh, we call it uh, nonlinear wave computing. So our brain is actually not a Turing machine, it's not a classical computer, it's nothing of that sort. Um, it's using waves for computation. <laughs> so when I say like, I'm on board, of course. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like the as a neural oscillations uh, enthusiast. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm very happy to dive into that. And then the the last kind of big contribution is uh, uh, our solution to the binding problem. Mm. Um, you know, how is it yeah, possible that all, all of these you know different neurons can simultaneously contribute to a unified experience? Mm -hmm from the classical kind of like ontology that people approach that question with is actually unsolvable. And, uh, you know, I think people have actually known these for, for gotcha. a while. <laughs> yeah, you, you have to change like the units that you're working with yeah. to even have a solution yeah, yeah, like, come out in any capacity. If the universe yeah. is made of like atoms and forces, mm -hmm. um, it's impossible to solve. Mm -hmm. uh, because with special relativity, essentially you have that there's like, there's actually no objective like plane of simultaneity. There's like mm -hmm. no way mm -hmm. of actually saying like which neurons are firing at the same yeah. time. And that's like essentially what you could call as like frame dependent. There's no mm -hmm. matter of fact 
So yeah. all the solutions in neuroscience are like, oh yeah, binding is just synchrony. It's like, well, actually that doesn't have a correct ontological grounding. There's no true thing as synchrony. It's all frame dependent. Mm. So, so you, you're switching the frame to be a wave, which is inherently non-local. In a way, yes. Yeah. We, rather than atoms and in, forces. Inherently simultaneous. Yes. In a way. You're, you're inherently unified. Mm, yeah. So yeah, yeah. you need to shift to essentially an ontology where like the universe is a gigantic field of consciousness mm -hmm. and then it's not the binding problem it's the boundary problem mm. and that can be solved with topology and bifurcations um, where essentially you know if the universe is this gigantic field of consciousness you imagine like the surface of a balloon mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you twist the balloon from both ends and there's a precise moment where you get a pinch point yeah, yeah. that's called a topological bifurcation and then you actually get an objective boundary that divides the two sides of the field. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And if that point actually, let's say, for example, reflects waves of energy, all of a sudden you get the, you get the native harmonics of the topological pocket, which means that the pocket can actually act as a unit, just as like, you know, the sound of a guitar is actually a reflection of the entire shape of the guitar. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, so like mm -hmm. making these topological segmentations have behavioral yeah. consequences. And that's why evolution actually cared about making you know segmented yeah, yeah, minds yeah, because yeah. so we're all in a big field we're like pinching and like yeah. <laughs> rolling off different units of consciousness right yes that's yes. the model yep and and with that essentially there is like an objective precise amount of consciousness mm. every moment of experience which is like all the energy trapped in the topological pocket all right, I think this segment's a lot more straightforward, but I'll summarize it briefly. So the idea is that Andres is shifting our ontological, metaphysical view of reality to instead of having a bunch of pieces that then need to build up a whole, we start from a wholeness of everything, a unified field of the universe as one potentially giant conscious experience uh, experiencer and then you're pinching off parts of that field into segmented topological segments right and uh, the way that he kind of shows this is if you can imagine like the surface of a balloon and you take a clump of that balloon and you twist it you can actually roll it so that there's another sphere that's entirely separate from the whole but it's still sort of linked in with the whole simultaneously, right? And so in his model, all conscious beings are still, you know, stuck within or pinched off from the unified field of all things. However, we have our pinching, we have our bifurcation, our topological bifurcation, which creates a single self from the whole, and then he also imposes some sort of resonance or some sort of energy, uh, some vibration that is occurring within these different fields. So there's potentially like a subfield within that, that topological segment. And then there's resonance patterns of that field. And the energy of consciousness or the intensity of consciousness would maybe be some sort of... Um, how dynamically that field is resonating. And now the bit that gets a little bit more complicated, which uh, we'll get into in this next section, is that within the segmentation that is you, 
right? You're pinched off into this body, but there's also sub-segments within yourself which are also pinched. And so Andres will be talking about how there's sort of uh, energy or you could imagine there's just sort of dynamics flowing within these, these segments. And if you had a blockage or a sub-segment that's not resonating with the whole, then that could lead to further distortion. So maybe you view this as a sort of nested segmentation where you have segments within segments within segments. Um, I guess we're in like some arbitrary geometric space, so we could potentially allow for infinite sub-segmentation within the field. Um, so I, th I think to me that would potentially be the best way to make to make sense of these ideas is there some sort of universal segment for you then there's the universal field of all things and then within your field there is some sort of segmenting where you can have pockets of energy which are doing their own thing and then you have this more macro scale occurring and what we will be going into is the connection of this to neural oscillations and electric fields in the brain where, okay, we're speaking very abstractly about these geometric segments, but you can think about it a little more practically as maybe these are electrical resonance pockets within the brain, and then you can have more macroscopic electric resonance, and there's sort of this dynamic interaction between micro pockets and macro uh, resonance structures where if they're discordant with each other or they're not coherent with each other, then this might subjectively be experienced as some sort of negative affect, some sort of negative valence. Whereas if there is coherent resonance across these multiple different scales, then this is more of a uh, positive valence experience. And I think a lot of this kind of resonates with my own theories about nested electric oscillations within the brain and sort of this fractal-like scaling of biological systems. So at face value, I appreciate these ideas and I can see a lot of value um, in, in this approach. I think the challenges here are if you want to make a hard topological segmentation, um, how do you have subsegments within this larger topology? Is there a distinction between a hard segmentation and maybe a soft segmentation where there's a stable sub bifurcation, which isn't as strongly disconnected as, as this larger scale, right? So what I'm trying to get at here is, is our sense of being a single person, of being a single individual, and then having blockages internally, um, I feel like there's you need at least two different types of, of bifurcation here or some sort of nested bifurcation model. Um, I don't know what Andres would think about this. These are ideas I'm having, you know, in hindsight, uh, but potentially we'll, we'll get this conversation started up again. There's um, this study that came out this week in the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, and yeah, it shows that single dose psilocybin can have a pretty dramatic um, impact on mental health, uh, particularly depression scores, and the effects seem to last a few weeks, and it kicks in more or less um, immediately, but then 
seems to have like yeah a resounding impact on people's lives so yeah I think this is definitely like the exciting new wave that psychiatry is moving in so yeah what is your research kind of informed us about that yeah yeah what's the mechanism here so um, uh, you know I'll start with the the metaphor which is um, uh, in metallurgy (laughs) Mm. you know if you use a metal a lot uh, it will it's called a cold work essentially um, tiny indentations in the metal will start to form and essentially the crystal lattice that it had which actually was what allowed it to have you know like ductility and Mm -hmm. and the Mm -hmm. properties that were very helpful for for the material um, it becomes imperfect essentially it develops all of these uh, pinch points and fault lines and indentations Mm. and in a sense actually is like storing internal stress and now if you heat it up above its recrystallization temperature and there's going to be a threshold like Mm. if you don't heat it enough it's not going to happen essentially the lattice will start to reorganize and at first it's in a chaotic way but if you let it cool in a good schedule Mm. um, it can actually cool into a perfectly symmetrical lattice wow and it's one of these paradoxical things where like you actually get like more order from the disorder from adding chaos yeah of course like there's order in the cooling schedule and like that needs to be taken into account and essentially you know also introspect on what happens when you're like really stressed i mean literally and in the end (laughs) i think like we will find out that Mm. actually like we're like creating neural fault lines in our like geometric neural fields or something Uh, absolutely Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and uh you know one way of kind of like quantifying like how depressed or anxious you are is and you know this is a qri paradigm um, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of taking like a lot of like, you know, Eastern wisdom and, and, you know, hippie intuitions, but like trying to formalize this, um, you know, in, in meditation and yoga, they talk a lot about like getting rid of blockages, for example, yeah, yeah, like yeah. if you send a wave of, of awareness, like downwards and upwards, like where does it get blocked and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where does it feel like it bounces off or like, where does it refract or diffract? And mm-hmm. Essentially, like the more of those, like pinch point, shear points, imperfections, blockages, fault lines you have, the more unpleasant the experience is because the waves essentially will reflect and collide with each other and mm-hmm. creating these moments of dissonance. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. essentially, yeah, like what is, for example, a state of anxiety, but a lot of very fast micro moments of dissonance and um, like or uh, let's say like strain and and pressure Mm. like it's kind of like you can tell okay how anxious you are in terms of like how much jittering of your attention there is how much like you know bottom-up prediction errors are happening it's like well my heart is doing these like this 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 all of that kind of like paints a weird picture of like what's going on in your body and your mind Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh we think also that will essentially follows a follows a um log normal log normal distribution in that like you know if you're like nine out of ten anxiety panic attack versus you know five out of ten is like a huge it's like a huge exponential yeah. difference yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah so you think one day we'll be able to i don't know map out neural resonance yeah. patterns yeah. and we, we could actually detect like yeah the valence of someone's experience based on how coherently reflective yep. the, the patterns are the rhythms are something like that absolutely hmm. even with techniques like um like a I mean, you know, like how you can measure like reverb in a cave, you know, yeah, yeah. you would do this uh, like frequency sweep, like whoop, 
uh, and you see like how it reflects back. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. like doing things such as like stroboscopic stimulation of different frequencies. Nice. And yeah. seeing what are the neuroacoustics for mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, if, if you're kind of messed up, in some yeah, frequencies yeah. you will see like, oh, actually it reflects in this very poor way, misshaped way. Like it doesn't reflect all at once. It reflects faster here than here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or even like doing like magnetic impulses into someone's yes. brain or something. That oh, exactly. Cool. And even like taking like pinpoints and like yep. expecting to see some like <laughs> resonance pattern and then it's there All of that. it's not there. Yeah. I mean, then it's going to be kind of the mm. question of like, what is the, the minimum viable, like holistic assessment of the neuroacoustics of the person? Um, uh, you know, a lot of food for, the, for that. Yeah. Oh my God. So, so then the, the annealing, back to the annealing. So yeah, then yeah. it's kind of like your metallurgy example, Absolutely. right? So you're trying to like heat up the brain get a little more chaos and then like recrystallize it into like a more yeah. coherent form in our theory psychedelics to a first approximation i mean then mm-hmm. psychedelics do a lot of things but like to a first approximation they energize your state mm-hmm. of consciousness um yeah i mean for sure they do yeah. it in slightly different ways we have this thing uh, it's called the tracer tool i don't know if you've uh, you've seen mm-hmm. it so we created this really cool tool um uh, I, I could show you in my phone, like, uh, you, you should definitely put it on the... I'll put it on there. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, where essentially we have, a, it's kind of like a Photoshop for, like, simulating visual tracers. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. yeah so it's, it's not only kind of like, oh, like a decay function, but it's also like, sometimes like you get kind of like this, like, frozen imagery on, mm-hmm, like, LSD. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes you have, like, what yeah. we call, like, replay effects, which is, like, the scene kind of, like, replays over and over, mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. you know, every, like... 200 milliseconds or something yeah. and it has like a decay function so essentially with our or it shifts color so, so our, our tool you can use to essentially put an, a video and then like fiddle with all the parameters until it looks like what it looked like on lsd or it looked oh, like that's on amazing so you're trying to map your like your experience into the into the yeah. video representation yeah, yeah. yeah. and uh you know and we, we put huh. it online and i shared it with like you know very trusted hardcore psychonauts mm-hmm. um very ra- you know rational hardcore like meditators and psychonauts and essentially we we got some primi- preliminary data um so they, they sent you back videos that they had edited or like tweaked these parameters yeah exactly the the, the 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 tool is pretty cool because i mean you can use it online and uh, mm-hmm. there's like a button to like submit parameters and you just select oh them. okay so you just like submit some okay. yep we have a spreadsheet where we're collecting the parameters oh my God. from people online. Interesting. And there's like like a preliminary data, which uh, I think is fascinating. It agrees with kind of like subjective reports, which is that um, mm. phenethylamines make stroboscopic kind of like visual tracer effects between like 10 and 15 hertz. Uh, LSD is between like 15 and 20 hertz, like higher frequency. Psilocybin, like around like 22 hertz. And then DMT is like 30 hertz and 5-MeO is around like 40 hertz. So actually... Wow. Like, I mean, that's bizarre. Yeah. Well, and, and I would love to get some like EEG or some yeah, recordings yeah, yeah. of that too. Right? I mean, I mean, if you think sure. like gamma coher- high gamma coherence, mm-hmm. I think like that yeah, probably tracks like something like 30 hertz, uh, 30 hertz mm-hmm, stroboscopic mm-hmm. stimulation and, or stroboscopic like tracers. And uh, I mean, essentially the theory here... Uh, at a neurophysiological level is that there's like this serotonin receptor, you know, serotonin uh, receptor specific metronomes that are kind of like part of the visual control system mm. that add, add things such as like reverb and uh, echoes and strobes and things like that. 
that usually are, are used for things such as like being able to sync up audio and uh, and the visual experience because you know you can yeah, add yeah, a little yeah, delay yeah, yeah, and like yeah. your brain knows how to account for that. Yeah. Um, that so you're, you're viewing these ion channels as like pulsating or they're, they're setting some like rhythmic tone? The thalamocortical loop yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. essentially has like resonant modes and there's yeah, like yeah. different depending on which serotonin receptor you're interacting with. Gotcha, okay. So yeah. it's more like activating or like activating different circuits that have the resonant yes, tones. Okay, exactly. Cool. Circuits that become the kind of like pattern generators. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and essentially those, essentially we, we, we view them as energy sources. Mm. So literally, you take DMT, and phenomenologically, it feels like something is taking your experience and like shaking it like at 30 hertz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you experience these waves of energy like being emitted out of objects. Like it's crazy, right? Like if, if you, if you actually, you know, if you're if you're not very so sophisticated from a philosophical standpoint, and you think you're seeing the world directly. Mm -hmm. you, you absolutely get the perspective that like, oh my gosh, like objects the are world's vibrating <laughs> yeah. all around me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. The world's repeating itself every 200 milliseconds. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Whereas in, in this view is like, well, you're activating this metronome. Yeah. And yeah. that energizes your world simulation. And because mm -hmm. your consciousness is actually using waves for computation, mm -hmm. you actually get kind of like the waves colliding against each other. You get the energy minima of all of those patterns. And uh, well, among among those things, I mean, uh, so, something that that you 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 can realize is that uh, um, those waves all of a sudden can kind of like probe the blockages in your nervous system. So like mm. if you have like a a, a blockage uh, or a stress point on on DMT, the waves will be hitting it, and eventually it It'll may break through it. It will or, break through, yeah. yeah. And mm -hmm. and so like you know I would recommend you know like well. I, of course, like be very careful with psychedelics, but like uh, that's why like equanimity and surrender is so important because yeah, yeah, if yeah. you're resisting, you're actually adding extra pinch points and mm -hmm, fault lines. Mm -hmm. Whereas like if you just let the energy flow smooth it out, you will experience kind of like these sequences of breakthroughs where like, okay, you were experiencing a blockage here, but now all of a sudden the waves can go through. Mm -hmm. And then you can spend like, you know, 10, 20 minutes with the waves going through without a problem. Mm -hmm. And that essentially becomes kind of a scaffold or kind of like a, a blueprint that, okay, you've had that energy flow. And when you come down, that's kind of like maybe with heavy and learning or something like, okay, that pathway got activated. And now these parts of the nervous system that were not in speaking terms are mm -hmm. actually all of a sudden mm -hmm. able to speak mm -hmm. with each other. All right, so my camera actually shut off unexpectedly, so we lose the end of Andre's statement um, at this moment, unfortunately. But uh, to, to really summarize this idea of neural annealing as it relates to psychedelic therapy. So what Andre's is using as a metaphor is annealing, and this is also a metaphor used in quantum mechanics and quantum computers called quantum annealing. Um, I cover this in, um, in a previous episode. But the idea here is that when you have a metal, there are tiny imperfections in the metal. And if you heat it up and then cool it again, this is the annealing process, you actually allow for this internal organizational structure to reassert itself. So metals have this sort of strong crystalline lattice that they, that they form internally at a chemical level. And so through this heating process, you actually push out a lot of these imperfections and you allow for this more 
kind of raw fundamental self-organizational principle to reassert itself into the macroscopic object once again. So the idea here is if you have a bunch of sub-segments, topological pockets within yourself, and maybe they're discordant, they're not resonant, by adding a psychedelic into the mind, into the brain, into the body, the theory here is that you're sort of heating up the brain and the body, but on sort of an energetic, uh, cognitive, qualia, geometric level, right? So if there's some sort of an inherent, resonant, lattice, geometric structure to the mind, can you heat up the mind and then allow it to recool into a more sustainable, stable structure, right? So the idea is that after having this psychedelic experience, where everything's very resonant and coherent, blissful, potentially high positive valence, once you return to the ground state, to the cooled, low energy state, have you restabilized yourself, having more of these resonant structures persisting beyond that experience, right? You've sort of reorganized, you are an imperfect metal and you've reasserted your natural crystalline alignment within your metallic self, right? To push this annealing metaphor to its ultimate end. Um, and I think it's an interesting theory, right? Um, I think the challenge here is we're speaking very abstractly. And so the question is, what does this really mean for biology and how would we instantiate something like this, right? So if we think about electric oscillations, neural oscillations in the brain, could it be that psychedelics are boosting internal coherence that's going to this more macroscopic scale where many brain structures are coming into coherent electrical alignment and that's sort of creating synaptic stable plastic changes in the brain where now after you've cooled down from the psychedelic experience you have neural pathways that you can reaccess to engage those same qualitative subjective experiences without needing so much energy uh, to kind of break through those energy barriers. You've now created stable, simple, low energy pathways that have higher coherence than when you started, right? So that would be sort of a theory on why a single dose acute psychedelic experience could be therapeutic when in this sort of medical setting with the proper uh, buildup and framing within, you know, the therapeutic setting. So more on this uh, to come. I mean, from from our theories and accounts, like, I think it's fairly likely that uh, we will find that the total amount of consciousness that you're experiencing mm -hmm, mm -hmm. maps onto essentially the total energy that is in the patchwork of local field potentials of your brain. Mm, okay. Uh, obviously completely testable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which would suggest that like, uh, when you take a psychedelic and you have like more intense consciousness, that would mean that actually there is literally more energy in your hmm. patchwork of local field potentials. Like higher amplitude yeah. and electrical fluctuations across the brain. Yes, the and idea. more of them at once. Uh -huh. um, and potentially some kind of like large scale 
grid pattern that interconnects mm. all of the local field potentials, which increases the impedance matching between them and allows them to actually uh, synchronize and then turn to coherence. So <laughs> that would be awesome. I mean, yeah. So I think one of the challenges here, right, is like we would love to get invasive recordings <laughs> in people that are able to really manipulate their cognitive state in yes. these like dramatic ways. Yes. Because yeah, th this feels like beyond animal research, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe you could have like focused attention in an animal where you're able to record at all these places, but yeah, it just seems it seems like that might not even get at at this level. Probably not. We might be a few years out. At yeah, least. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, and that does seem really tractable. I mean, so a lot of my own work, I've been really interested in these big low frequency electrical yeah. fluctuations in the brain, and particularly prefrontal seems to be like a major generator of these low frequency waves, and it gets like, they get transmitted across across the brain. Yeah. Um, and then you find coupling between these low frequency like more macro scale signals with these more like localized higher frequency signals that are you know distributed into different regions like yeah i don't know and, and then just kind of on this on the same kick just to hear hear your comments on this it seems like when you measure like scalp electrical activity you see such robust large scale rhythms yeah and then when you go measure individual brain regions you're almost in like this other world electrically mm -hmm. where you're so zoomed in and the activity patterns, I don't know, like may or may not map up with these with these more global rhythms. So I mean, I, I wonder if you're in one of these transcendent states or these altered yeah. states with like increased resonance, maybe you would see more of a correspondence between like the global electrical field and like the more local yeah. electrical fields. Yeah, I, I would expect that. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, especially let's say like you know the upper upper Janus like becoming one with mm -hmm. space, becoming like pure consciousness, mm -hmm. things like that, from our point of view, from QRI's models, entail that there's like essentially a dissolution of internal boundaries, mm. meaning that whatever the patchwork of local field potentials is, um, you don't have like out of phase interactions be between mm -hmm. neighboring regions, mm -hmm. meaning that yes, you will have like a, some kind of a super coherent grid pattern <laughs> across mm -hmm. the brain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, even more crazy is like on something like DMT, uh, yeah. you know, I have yeah this whole account of like the mathematical structure of each of the levels and so on, that especially in higher doses, you will have a patchwork of local field potentials that not only is it like hyper coherent across the brain, mm -hmm. but it's so energized that it's geometry is actually hyperbolic and is you actually inhabit a different phenomenal space and that would be encoded in the mm -hmm. geometry of those mm -hmm. local field potentials. So, I mean, an example is, um, I wrote this article about like <laughs> emulating, you know, ma making a little pendant of really cool art installation that like uh, essentially looks like hyperbolic 3D space. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. This uses like gradient index optics where essentially mm -hmm. you have two materials with different uh, index of refraction that you blend in a smooth way and when you do that, okay. a beam of light, rather than kind of like sharply taking a turn as it oh, happens, gotcha. it goes through kind of these like curved path. Wow. Okay. So in principle, if you do essentially kind of like something like that, where like there's like a center of a certain index of refraction, it slowly turns into a different index of refraction. And then you, you cut it to make a um, dodecahedron and you add kind of double 
you know, or single-sided mirrors. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. From the point of view of light, it's going to be in a hyperbolic space. And like the light rays, mm, yeah. they're not going to be able to tell that actually they inhabit an object that is embedded in 3D Euclidean space. But it's like from the point of view of the light rays, it's mm. in a different geometry. I think it's going to be the same with... The, the electrical waves in your brain. Yes. Yeah, because they're not actually in hyperbolic no. geometric space. But then the way that they're moving embodies like hyperbolic movement yes. rather than uh, Euclidean movement. Absolutely. That, that's what That'd I be wild. <laughs> That'd be super measurable, right? If you get in there and start yeah. yep, just tracking electric field patterns. Yeah. Yeah. And this is the, the kind of example of... Uh, extremely wild and speculative things that QRI says that like <laughs> may pay off like in five years is like oh gosh like, yeah okay we were wrong through. yeah we, well, we, also, we also measured it totally and, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's good though I mean it's like it takes a lot to stick your neck out and have like a falsifiable yeah. you know theory all right so this is a really cool idea in my opinion of what Andres is really pitching here and I covered this a bit in episode 31, so go check out that episode to learn a little bit more. But the basic idea here is that there are geometric properties to our experience, and these properties are most apparently distorted in psychedelics. And so Andres has spent some time mapping out the different geometric properties of different psychedelic states and he basically makes the claim that while it seems like oh my god there's so much wild stuff going on visually all this wild imagery it seems like impossible shapes are being witnessed these impossible shapes actually have clear geometric properties but they're often what's called hyperbolic geometry and hyperbolic geometry is instead of euclidean geometry which is right angles, parallel lines that don't intersect. Um, it's sort of that simple Euclidean Cartesian idea of what, of what we think about um, kind of naively, intuitively for how the world around us is, is organized spatially. In hyperbolic geometry, everything is splitting off sort of uh, constantly. So everything is curving and there's sort of more space within a, a, a single location, right? So you could have five right angles that are all touching whereas normally you know you can only have four squares touching each other in hyperbolic geometry you can have more than four squares touching in a corner because space is fundamentally curving outward and so this gives a lot of these sort of trippy feelings to when you're seeing geometry it looks like everything's kind of folding and moving and undulating and it kind of has a psychedelic property to it inherently and so what Andres is saying is that if your mind space is instantiated in some physical property in the brain, if that physical property in the brain is moving or expressing itself in a hyperbolic pattern, then the internal experience might mirror some sort of hypergeometric experience, right? So the idea is that, yes, we're grounded within a simple Euclidean 3D reality, but if your mind is sort of being simulated from within the electrical activity of the brain, if the electrical activity of the brain is moving and changing according to hyperbolic geometric principles, 
then the internal experience of you embedded within that electric pattern, you would have a hyperbolic geometric experience. And so, you know, this is potentially testable if you could get subjective reports and measurable data showing that when this activity pattern moves within a certain geometric distribution, the subjective experience fits with that geometric distribution. Potentially, this would be somewhat compelling evidence. Or better yet, you could drive or you could change the electrical activity within the brain and force it to move hyperbolically. Could you induce a subjective experience of this sort of hyperbolic geometric scaling? So I do think, you know, right now this stuff feels very much uh, either beyond science or kind of in future science territory. But there are sort of testable experiments that you could potentially come up with uh, to test these ideas. So I think this is really cool stuff, really exciting. Um, happy to hear uh, what you all think about this out there. It's probably uh, not a good branding because it sounds like we're intolerant. <laughs> it sounds like you're intolerant. Yeah, yeah. But no, no, this is like an anti-drug tolerance. So we have a mm. zero tolerance policy. No, I'm joking. For, for drug tolerance. For drug tolerance. <laughs> That's right. So, I mean, like... I mean, we're just like very pragmatic here in like, um, I, I think, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. opioids are like a bad idea for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think they're yeah, like, you've commented on this on your channel. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, like, I mean, I wouldn't recommend somebody, you know, take morphine for fun because it's kind of too risky. They may get addicted. Mm -hmm. But if you have like severe chronic pain, untractable chronic pain mm -hmm. that like, let's say a psychedelic experience or something is not going to help or equanimity is not going to help. Mm. Um, and like it's a sizable percent of the population, you know, there's like about like yeah. five, seven percent with severe chronic pain. Mm -hmm. They need opioids. And like mm -hmm. uh, it's, I'm very upset with kind of like the ideology of like, no, like, you know, like the opioid epidemic is caused by over prescription of opioid medicine. That, that doesn't seem to be the case. Yeah. And like that ideology has led to these like massive ethical disaster where essentially you cut people off from their medications. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I've and heard they say like stories. Yeah. take ibuprofen instead or something like mm -hmm. that, which is like actually may even have like worse side effects, but it just doesn't tackle the pain. Mm -hmm. uh, and well, opioids don't work indefinitely. I mean, it, for some people they do, but like some people develop hyperalgesia. Mm -hmm. They don't work as well after a while. They make you feel loopy. But then we have like this crazy like case reports of people taking like very tiny doses of ibogaine as an example yeah, yeah not yeah. not the trip not to have a psychedelic experience, oh okay but just like sub-threshold levels yeah. sub-threshold levels that like mm. seem to upregulate opioid receptors mm. and you know people let's say somebody has taken like mm. morphine for 20 years for a chronic pain severe chronic pain and they start taking these micro 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 doses of ibogaine and like after 10 days or something, they're able to cut down their opioid dose by like 90 percent mm. and they actually get more pain relief. They're more clear headed. They're like more motivated. They're like not depressed anymore. And like they're really I don't really see like the, 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 the problem there, but that's like criminally understudied, essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and Ibogaine is just one example. I mean, there's like... Um, is it, you think that's because of the, I don't know, the history around psychedelics and Ibogaine being a psychedelic? That is part is of that, it. Is that the but rationale? All, and I think, but part of it is, I mean, this sounds strange. I mean, like, kind of like this is the one of the strange places of intersection of QRI, which is like mm -hmm. 
most psychedelic kind of like uh, ideology is fairly opioid phobic in that like they will true they yeah. will yeah they will say something like ibogaine is great for like junkies getting people off of opioids or they will say something like um you know it's like for you to learn that you were betraying your family or something like that by being an addict or something yeah, yeah, like that yeah. where like we are radically pragmatic it's like no there's some people who just need it yeah. um even you know i think like even within uh if you're like spiritual and and like in buddhism there's like even yeah like stories um like the buddha had like actually like chronic pain and like he sometimes would have like his disciple like give part of the lecture because he uh, had like such a bad you know back wow. pain and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and or for example like um daniel ingram who's like a fourth path you know enlightened mm-hmm, person mm-hmm. he can break a bone and be fine like he's not gonna suffer from broken bone even though it's like very painful mm-hmm. but whenever he has a kidney stone the pain is actually just so bad that despite his enlightenment he still suffers he just can't even get through it yeah no yeah, so yeah. there's pain so great that it doesn't matter what meditation technique you apply or how much equanimity you have it's th- you will still suffer a great deal mm-hmm. and for that we have opioids <laughs> and they work right so so um essentially yeah anti-tolerance drugs is this whole we, we want to th- think of it not, not as a one-off thing but as a field of study like so yeah so instead of upping your your dosage of the medication you're trying to up the receptivity to the medication yes. in, the, in the brain yeah yeah and uh, interesting a very very promising one in this area is uh quinolidine uh just mm. like i'll make the <laughs> the quick plug we, we will probably actually make a trial of this next year if we get the proper funding for it mm. but essentially this is like super promising because it's like a completely new biochemical way of boosting endorphins so mm-hmm. uh if you flood the entire nervous system with opioids uh essentially a lot of neurons that are have nothing to do with like pain receptors you know become habituated to opioids so like when you mm, stop taking okay. them yeah a lot, a lot of crazy things happen you become sick you know nauseated yeah, yeah. etc um so quinolidine what it does is like it doesn't actually activate opioid receptors directly mm-hmm. what it does is like it uh kind of a um uh, disables this other receptor that is called a uh, uh ACKR3 okay, which is okay. a natural scavenger of endorphins so essentially oh so you're boosting the body's like ability to collect up its own endorphins or something exactly and so okay. you're not giving it endorphins you're just kind mm-hmm. of like making them last longer and it's just going to be in the places where like naturally they're supposed mm-hmm, to be mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, at least you know from like early case reports like there doesn't really seem to be any substantial tolerance to it or like withdrawal afterwards i mean we, we don't know for sure and i'm not gonna you know promise this is the case but it's like yeah yeah oh there's like some some indications this, this might work and you know it, it works for like mild pains doesn't mm-hmm, work for like mm-hmm. severe pain but it's also kind of like a very general mood booster and yeah, like motivation yeah, booster yeah, and like yeah. If these were to work, it could be like maybe like even better than coffee for everybody. Totally, totally. <laughs> yeah, I love that idea that you're kind of boosting the thing that is like regulating or kind of organizing these systems rather than like just cranking in like yeah, yeah. just the, the massive you know receptor floods. Yeah, you know? yeah, we call it yeah like you know subtle drugs at least in subtle these drugs. Yeah, that uh, play with the the brain's very own natural feedback system as mm. opposed to like. Yeah, cranking it up in a 
harsh yeah, way, yeah, like yeah. <laughs> something like that. Nice. So yeah. All right, Andres. Well, yeah. <laughs> thanks for sitting with me. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we'll talk more in the future. And I yeah, I appreciate your time. And sounds like you're doing so much cool research. Yeah, I'd love to see where this uh, yeah institute goes. And yeah, I personally would love to see more nonprofits like this interested in research and like you know, we don't need to necessarily be in university systems per se right we could well it turns out have, have new new paradigms uh, <laughs> of financing yeah stuff like this in the future maybe so yeah, yeah i'm totally on board yeah well and i look forward to uh continuing the conversation and seeing where the whole quantum consciousness yeah time goes <laughs> we're excited we're excited yeah we didn't quite talk about quantum computers but uh, yeah. we'll say that for next time <laughs> all right all righty thank you so much yeah you thank too. you everybody Thanks, everyone. <laughs> All right. So this is a series on quantum consciousness, and this episode doesn't quite have that much quantum consciousness. Uh, but I wanted to kind of end the episode thinking about these different models of geometry and how they might relate to quantum computers and to digital computers. So I take a little bit of a disagreement with Andres, where I do think that the brain is digitized on some level. And check out previous episodes, but the, the model coming from quantum mechanics is that the physical world is, a, is essentially a digitization of reality into particle form, into physical form. And so I think that the brain has a capacity for digitization and has sort of digital stores of memory. And we are potentially quantum computers interacting with a digital computational brain and so when i think about andre's ideas i think there's a lot going on here right i think taking subjectivity seriously is really important that's point one i think yet yeah, doing these sort of weird ways of trying to map out people's experiences geometrically is really important but then i think we do need to go look in the brain where can we find these geometric patterns occurring? And maybe these patterns are occurring in places that we haven't yet looked, right? So I think one candidate is in the interference patterns of these wave functions of quantum computers, there's something inherently wave-like and non-local and distributed in the probability distributions that are the wave functions that govern the functioning of quantum computers. And this could be a candidate for expressing these types of unified field wave-like properties, but you might not even see that in the physical world per se. You might see the artifact of these geometric computations that are occurring in the digital physical world but maybe a lot of this subjectivity, these qualia spaces, maybe these qualia spaces exist in the wave function, in the superposition domain. Another option, which I've talked about previously, is this idea of fractal computation, this idea of resonance across multiple scales within biology. Um, I think there's new forms of computation out there that we have yet to discover. Um, and so quantum computers are the advancement beyond the digital computer era. We're moving more fundamental. Digital computation is a subset 
a subspace of quantum computation, but are there even more fundamental levels beyond the quantum computer? So if there's this unified field truly in the background of the universe, could this be very geometric in, in its nature? And quantum computers themselves are sort of these topological bifurcations of this background fractal-like field dimension of the universe. This is all potentially true. However, it is very speculative at this point. I think um, in, my, in my own life, I've kind of taken the, the practical steps of, you know, I'm going to study brain stimulation and human neuroscience because these are the tools we have. I want to learn as much as I can about quantum computers, about digital computers. And I love, love, love these new ideas, these really creative thinkers like Andres, who's imagining maybe the next wave of understanding how wave functions are moving or thinking about new properties of mathematics or new ways of defining mathematics that is even more fundamental. So we need these abstract thinkers and we need the practical medical technologist as well. Um, so I hope you enjoyed the discussion today and I'll talk to you again real soon. Thank <laughs> you.